0: Hello friends, this is Jen Hale Christie and you're listening to Preach Her, a podcast and community for people who love Jesus or are open to it. You're listening to season one, episode four, and we are continuing through the gospel of Luke. So when we left off last week, Jesus was just starting his public ministry. He had been baptized received a sense of his own identity and purpose, and then spent some time in the wilderness being tested by the devil. Having successfully resisted the temptations, he went back home to begin his ministry and faced rejection almost immediately. Well, it wasn't just rejection, actually. I mean, they tried to kill him. His message was seen as a threat. And it actually wasn't just his message, it was really his personhood. It was the way that he was embodying and interpreting scripture. He presented himself as a prophet of the Most High and took the very words that were secret to them and said, these aren't only for you. He took their special status and their stories and God's provision and said, these aren't only for you. And they went level 10 and tried to drive him off a cliff. So you know, strong start to his ministry. For most of us, our little bumps in the road to our career or vocation kind of pale in comparison. But for Jesus, even this attempt on his life doesn't stop, delay, or deter him. He has a sense of his purpose and he keeps going where he senses God's leading. He visits other cities in Galilee, preaches in synagogues, and heals lots of people from things like demon possession and disease, and performs other miracles. The evil spirits that he drives out of people, they know who Jesus is. They know his identity and his power and authority, but most of the other characters really struggle to get it, as we'll see in this growing tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, you know, the ministers, pastors, and elders of his day. Now, before someone gets all bent out of shape, I want to clarify why I'm using those terms. It's tempting for some of us to vilify and other the Pharisees and scribes or teachers of the law, as they're often referred to in the gospels. Even the names that we use to speak of them, those names create a huge distance between us and them because we don't really use those titles, those names anymore. I don't know any Pharisees, do you? But I want to get closer to the world of the New Testament and the story of Jesus, not farther away. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they were the religious leaders of Jesus's day in similar ways that the ministers, pastors, priests, rectors, reverends, bishops, elders, and denominational presidents are the religious leaders of our day. Those are the people who figure so prominently in the Gospels as coming into repeated conflict with Jesus. So after Luke has set up who Jesus is and what authority he has— you know, to do things like rebuke demons and diseases and do other miracles. And we have a sense of what his ministry will be like. Next, we learn that he has no intention of going it alone. We see in chapter five, he starts to gather his inner circle, those who will be his friends for this difficult journey. And we hear the familiar story of Jesus telling the fishermen to throw their nets back out, even though they haven't caught anything all night long. And when they do, they have such a haul of fish that the nets are straining and they have to call for help. These three fishermen, Simon, who later gets the name Peter, James, and John, they become the inner circle of the inner circle. And these friends that he gathers to himself, these are friends who share meals and belly laughs, friends who encourage and support one another, friends who confide in and cry with one another. And with this growing circle of close friends, he's ready to continue his ministry and face the challenges to his authority and legitimacy that are about to come. He's presented with a man who's paralyzed, and he chooses to forgive the man's sins. But the religious leaders do not approve, and they try to put him in his place. Uh, hey, you're not allowed to do that. And then, to prove both his identity and his authority, Jesus heals the paralyzed man's body so that he is able to dance right out of there, leaving everyone's jaws on the floor. Next, we see Jesus at a party. This party, though, is at a guy named Levi's house. And although he has just started following Jesus, Levi is a tax collector. That means he's a Roman collaborator. He's Jewish, but he has sold out and he is working for the man. His whole job involves making house calls to get people to pay up, pay their taxes to Rome. And then like now, nobody liked paying taxes, but it was even more personal back then. And in that context, because some Jews questioned whether it was unethical or even against their religion to pay taxes to this Gentile government. And as if that wasn't enough, tax collectors actually had a reputation for mm, inflating the amount of money due so that they could skim off the top for themselves and still give to Rome what was due Rome. So that's Levi, and Jesus is at his house for a party with other tax collectors. And as you might guess, he draws some criticism from the religious elite because of the company he's keeping. They ask, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Again, we see that they don't get it. They don't know who he really is and what his purpose is. And again, he has to remind them that his message is for the very people who are on the outside, who are on the margins. In the very next story, the ministers and pastors are asking Jesus why his disciples don't fast and pray like other disciples do. Now, except for that one time when all of the townspeople tried to mob and kill Jesus, so far in the story, their religious leaders seem more confused than anything. You know, they're trying to figure out what category to put him in. I mean, he seems like a rabbi or a prophet, definitely prophetic overtones and undertones, but he also doesn't follow all the rules like they've been doing for hundreds of years. I mean, who does he think he is to come in here and shake everything up like this? Why don't your disciples fast and pray like the others? Why do you guys eat with tax collectors and sinners when the rest of us avoid them like the plague? We have very clear guidelines and rules about how to be God's people in this world, and you need to respect our authority. Respect that this is the way we do things. We have been over and over this stuff before, and we have hundreds of years of tradition to support why we do what we do. This is how we do things. Why aren't you falling in line? But you know what Jesus says when they ask him about fasting? In Luke chapter 5, verses 36 through 39, he tells them this parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it on an old garment— Otherwise, the new will be torn and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new wine but says, hmm, the old was better. And in the very next story after that, They accuse him and his disciples of breaking the Sabbath. And in the very next story after that, they actually watch him cure someone on the Sabbath, breaking their law. And that is it. They have had it. That's the breaking point for these religious leaders. Luke chapter 6, verse 11 reports that the scribes and the Pharisees were, quote, filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Years ago, a dear friend shared this wise saying with me. With every birth, there is a death. She had been pondering that truth in reference to the actual birth of her second child and how she hadn't realized that this birth also meant a death, a death of them being a family of three, a death of them pouring all their love, affection, and attention into their one child, a death of the way that things were. And it occurs to me that the religious leaders are struggling with the death that comes along with Jesus's birth and Jesus's ministry. As long as it doesn't seem to break any of their laws, they're happy for him to teach and preach and heal and perform miracles. But when it seems like the birth of this new thing might also signal and require the death of other things, other things that they hold quite dear, that they feel strongly about, they can't accept that. When this new thing, this God among us, this God revealing God's self to us and showing us what it truly means to be human and how to be in the world and what really matters, when this new thing clashes with the way we've always done things, the way we've always interpreted God's word for us, the religious leaders don't know what to do. They are resisting and rejecting that death. It doesn't make them bad people. It's a natural human instinct to want to keep things the way they are. They're asking, who are you to come in here and reinterpret scripture? And Jesus models for his followers at the time and throughout time, up until now and beyond, he models how scripture has to constantly be reinterpreted because we don't always get it right. In fact, we get it wrong a lot of the time. And even in the sacred pages of Scripture, we see how God's people got it wrong sometimes. You remember how they thought God was telling them to commit genocide? But, I mean, the God that we see in the person of Jesus would just never do that. So somewhere along the way, the communication lines got crossed. They got it wrong. And we have too. Scripture has to constantly be reinterpreted because it's not static. It's a dynamic word reflecting and suggesting and inspiring and foretelling the movements of God in the world. And there are big T truths in it, like God's very nature is love, and Jesus is the embodiment of God's very being. So if we want to know who God is, we look at Jesus, and we look backwards and forwards through scripture from there, reading it all through the lens of Jesus. Now, I know scholars of the Hebrew Bible would disagree with that kind of reading, but that is the Jesus-informed faith perspective that guides how I read and interpret and understand and apply scripture. It all hinges on Jesus. So while there are those big T truths, there are also other smaller T truths and teachings and wisdom that sound different in different contexts. Things that have to be translated and interpreted and contextualized over and over and over for different times and different places and different people, because ever since these things were written for a particular time and place and people, everything has changed and just keeps changing. So there's some historical distance and some temporal distance and some cultural distance, not to mention political and ethnic and religious distance the Bible is not self-evident. There is no such thing as a pure reading of scripture as coming to it with no preconceptions, nothing that is going to color and filter the way that we read scripture. It's not possible. Although I was raised to believe that the Bible is self-evident that you can just get a pure reading of scripture. In my tradition, we would affirm things like if you've ever seen this bumper sticker or keychain, the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. As if it's ever as easy and settled as that. While I do believe that the Bible is inspired and it is in a special category of literature, it shares many similarities with broader literature. You know, it includes various genres, lots of authors. It's not objective, detached, or unbiased. It is culturally and temporally and socially and geographically located. Even as it has things to say to us outside of those structures, it is located in a particular time and place. And to a large extent, it is reflective of the time in which it was written. The individual texts are reflective of the time in which they were written and rewritten and interpreted over time. Anyway, all that to say, yeah, we have to keep wrestling with it discerning what it says to us today. Because while I believe it will always say that God is love and Jesus is the embodiment of God's very being here on earth and that what matters more than anything is that we love God and love others, while I believe it will always say these things, the finer points... All the, you know, how now shall we live points? How do we arrange ourselves as churches? How do we worship? How do we practice communion or baptism? How do we structure households and leadership and ministries? Those finer points aren't all clearly defined in scripture. Those are things we have to work out together with fear and trembling. And we start with the person of Jesus and what he said is most important. We let that guide how we enter into the conversations about all the other stuff. In chapter six, verses 36 to 38, with the parables about the garments and the wine, Jesus is saying that he is here doing a new thing. So don't expect him to import all the old stuff onto this new thing, or, you know, just attach this new thing to all the old stuff. This way of life that he is preaching about, it's the new garment, the new wine. You wouldn't just try to paste the new onto the old or pour the new into the old. No, this is something totally new, a new way of being in the world. Because for thousands of years, people tried to live in relationship with God and one another, but they just kept getting it wrong. They kept misunderstanding. They kept misinterpreting. They couldn't quite get it. So God broke into time and space in the form of Jesus and said, This is the path. Walk in it. This is how to be in the world. This is how to be human. This is how to be in relationship with one another, in relationship with the land, in relationship with neighbors, in relationship with enemies, in relationship with God. There is mutuality. There is submission. There is forgiveness. There is acceptance. There is love. And there is wholeness. This is the way of Jesus. This is the life to which we are called. And I wonder, in what ways are we, like the religious leaders, resisting the death of things that really do need to die? What do Jesus' words about garments and wine have to say to us? What does Jesus' message to the ministers and pastors of His day sound like for us today? Are there traditions that we need to let die? Practices that we need to let go of? Are there beliefs that need to be reinterpreted? I shudder to even think it, but are there whole religious traditions or denominations that might need to die? I've read this wonderment in a few places recently in articles and blog posts that friends have written. And while I don't like it and I don't even want to think about it, I'm still encouraged by the truth that even if particular churches or denominations or traditions or practices die, God is still among us. And maybe, just maybe, God has actually been eagerly waiting for us to let go of the way we've always done things, to loosen our grip, to relinquish our perceived control, so that God can do even greater things through and among and for us. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear the new thing that God is doing in the world. May we have hearts that are open and willing to step into that unknown future. And may it be with us according to God's word. If today you find yourself on the outside without a seat at the table or a voice in the conversation, may you lean into the truth that you are always welcome in God's community If you are one who bears the name minister, pastor, elder, shepherd, or are otherwise considered a religious or faith leader, may you have an openness to discovering the new thing that God is doing in our day. And may you have courage to join God in that. May you be emboldened and encouraged to honor the space that God has already created for all. If something was stirred in you today, reach out hearing from you helps to shape the future of this podcast and this community. You can always email me at jenhalechristie at gmail.com or connect on Instagram or Facebook at jenhalechristy. Thank you to those of you who have already emailed, texted, and connected online. I really love hearing from you. It helps others to find this podcast if you will subscribe, like, and review it on whatever player you're using. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next time.